This episode of Primitive Culture is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and to help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the non-profit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. This is Tim Russ, Lieutenant Commander Tuvok on Star Trek Voyager, and you're listening to Trek FM. Open your mind to the past. Oh, this may mean something. I've been coerced into watching tonight's movie. You do have books in the 24th century. It's a primitive culture. I'm just trying to blend in. Some people think the future means the end of history. We haven't run out of history quite yet. Hello and welcome to Primitive Culture, a Trek FM podcast all about our history, our culture and how Star Trek relates to it. I'm Duncan Barrett and today I'm joined by Lee Hutchison. Hi Lee, how are you? Yeah, I'm good, thanks. Thanks for having me back. Always a pleasure, Lee. You ready for a deep dive tonight? Yeah, I've got my little swim shorts on. I'm good to go. Should I say my little cap? I think it's more appropriate to probably have a, a nice cap and sort of a, a nice thick jacket actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you, you you might need more than that. You might need some scuba gear or, you know, even uh, something kind of heavier than that. Um, we are looking today at uh, a great uh, a classic of uh, watery, I was going to say nautical literature. I don't know if it quite counts as nautical because it's under the water rather than on the water. But um, we're talking about 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, the 1870 novel by Jules Verne, which um, crops up in a couple of episodes of Voyager, uh, is, is mentioned, name-checked, well, actually na- name-checked twice, effectively, name-checked in Year of Hell, which is what we're going to kind of mainly be focusing on, because that's the episode that probably really draws from this story the most. Um, but name-checked as well in the underwatery episode, um, 30 Days, where we have Tom Paris with his love of all things seafaring, and indeed including things faring under the sea. Um, it's a wonderful novel. I don't know about you. I mean, I read this when I was a kid and was kind of uh, transfixed by it, like Tom Paris was. My son has listened to the, at least some of the audio uh, version, and it's a bit of a grown-up book for him, I suppose, but he's just obsessed with submarines and absolutely uh, thrilled by the whole thing. <laughs> I think particularly the idea of submarines that ram ships and make them sink. Uh, there's something quite thrilling about that somehow to children of all ages. I'm sure he'll love Star Trek Nemesis then. <laughs> we'll have to wait and see yeah he did actually funnily enough i did because uh, i had to watch 30 days in preparation for this and i uh i had it on and he sort of wandered over and he, you know was kind of looking over my shoulder at my ipad so i said oh do you want to watch it with me um and he sat through i think it's the first time he's actually sat through a whole star trek episode we watched uh the voyage home a few weeks ago and he enjoyed that again because he loves whales and, and there was a kind of watery going for a watery theme i suppose <laughs> i don't know maybe he might enjoy like the opening uh section of into darkness as well and anything that has a kind of underwater theme but um he really enjoyed it i I love that episode too but yeah 
yeah um nemesis i'm not not so sure but yeah you're right there's there's definitely a kind of parallel there with this idea of you know using your ship as a as a battering ram you know attaining ramming speed as wolf has it in first contact I think there's something to be said about like kids and something like 30 days where I, I think what it was like late 98. So I think by the time it came to the UK, I would have been about 11, 12, something like that. Mm. And like, I remember just being always thinking about the idea of like, I would like to see the enterprise go underwater or like mm. it just, it could easily do that. It's got shields. I think there's something that just like plays to that little boyish, childish element where it's kind of like, spaceship goes into the sea and there's just something quite different and exciting about that and almost surprises you it took so long for a star trek to do something like that over like 500 odd episodes it's true actually because obviously there are a lot of parallels between submarines and spaceships i mean you know going all the way back to the original series um we had balance of terror it was basically a kind of submarine uh drama on the Enterprise. Again, with Wrath of Khan, I think there's a lot of kind of submarine vibes there. And by the time they got to Enterprise, of course, they were touring uh, nuclear submarines to get kind of inspiration for production design. So elements like the the low ceilings, the, the, the bits sticking out that you had to kind of dodge so you didn't knock yourself out. Things like that were kind of taken directly from real life uh, submarines. And there is obviously a kind of basic parallel between a vessel in space, which is an environment that if either it comes into the ship or, or you go out into it is essentially going to kill you. You know, there's, there's no air to breathe. There's no, it's, it's a hostile alien environment, isn't it? And being underwater, which is pretty much the same, you know, you're, you know, you're going to drown, you're going to suffocate and you're also going to be subjected to pressure. Um, that is, is very dangerous in a similar way, you know, that you have in space. So I think there are these kind of parallels between these two, uh, environments. Funnily enough, I heard an interview, um, on the radio a few weeks ago with Heidi Thomas, uh, the screenwriter who writes Call the Midwife. And I don't know why they ended up talking about Star Trek. And she was saying, you know, her brother watched Star Trek or something when she was a kid. And she said for years, cause she'd never really watched it. This would be the original series. It was sort of on in the background. She believed it was set on a submarine. She actually hadn't picked up that it was set in space somehow. <laughs> and you can sort of see how the, the whole uh, style of the drama is very applicable. And certainly the Nautilus in 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, I think, has features in common with a lot of the ships we see in Star Trek. It's it's not just a kind of military vessel. It's a kind of luxury vessel. It has a library. It has, you know, music on board. It has kind of uh, lavish feasts. It's sort of, um, it's very much the kind of Enterprise D or the, the Voyager of the Star Trek universe somehow. Yeah, it always seems that seems to be that by and large Star Trek seems to get pulled between that. Like it's the, the luxury liner in space. You think of the Enterprise, Voyager, and then you have that kind of Nicholas Meyer sort of like it's the naval style thing where it like it really mm-hmm. leans into that. And then a kind of Enterprise maybe kind of takes that a little bit further. And then, you know, I was thinking you think of some of the episodes where I always have a thing for Star Trek when it goes a bit nautical, a bit naval, where I think of a, an episode I recently finished a, a Deep Space Nine rewatch. And I just absolutely love, um, I think it's for the uniform where mm. the Defiant's slightly damaged and like you just see the ship basically turn into this kind of naval, un, like um, submarine style ship where everyone's kind of communicating. It's between all the different levels. You get a, a kind of a really interesting insight into to Star Trek that way. And you think of all the hundreds of episodes and movies how very few of them seem to to lean into that kind of you know full-handedly like it does with say star trek 2 in particular a bit of six and then some of the episodes we're going to talk about today 
Absolutely. That episode for the uniform, I think it's also a rare example where you kind of get some kind of understanding of why there are so many people on these starships, at least in that instance, because you've got messages being conveyed back and forth and the idea that everyone has to be sort of coordinated somehow. Whereas a lot of the time in Star Trek, it kind of feels really, it it could almost be like a, a school bus or a people mover or something. You know, there's a handful of people on the bridge and we don't really know what anyone else is doing, but you know, this thousand odd people on the Enterprise D, uh, who knows how many of them are actually actively involved in anything that's happening while the ship is kind of going around. But episodes like that, it kind of makes you a little bit more aware of that, I suppose, um, in, in the way that you would be, you know, on a sailing vessel, it's very obvious because you've got, I don't know, people going up the rigging, pulling on ropes, you, you, you know, their, their jobs are very clear and sort of visible, I suppose. Whereas with these starships, we're sort of supposed to understand, I suppose, every time, you know, Worf or whoever fires a torpedo, are we meant to imagine someone is loading that into a tube like we see at other moments? I mean, Star Trek obviously is not necessarily consistent about these things. You're right. Nicholas Meyer obviously leans into the the kind of seafaring element. Hence, we do get scenes of like torpedoes being loaded into tubes and things like that. A lot of Star Trek doesn't really uh, go there. It's, it's, it's not really interested um, in this stuff. And, you know, I guess at the other extreme, you get things like the, you know, the uh, in the Kelvin films, the kind of crazy engineering set that, you know, is, is basically a brewery. It, it looks wildly oversized. On Discovery, you get these kind of turbo shafts that seem to be about five times as big as the ship itself. <laughs> you get all these kind of bizarre uh, issues around, I suppose, around space and scale. Um, but I think it's an interesting one thinking about a submarine because the submarine is somewhat more cramped than most of the starships that we're familiar with. On the other hand, the Nautilus in 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea is supposed to be a sort of, you know, surprisingly large submarine. I mean, I, I don't know if there, I don't think there were even other submarines to compare it to, but it, it, we get the sense that it's not a kind of cramped, confined environment so much. It, it's, it's built in a, as I say, a kind of almost palatial way. And certainly in the uh, very popular Disney movie, I would say one of the great strengths of that movie is the production design. I don't know if you've seen that uh, 1960s film. I mean, the the design of the Nautilus, which is not at all how I imagined it when I first read the book, absolutely gorgeous, though. And the design of, you know, Nemo's room with his organ and all his, you know, this sense um, in both Year of Hell and in... Uh, 20,000 Leagues, there's a sense that this ship is a museum as much as anything else. I mean, in 20,000 Leagues, uh, Aranax, the kind of narrator character, marvels over many of the things that Nemo has collected over the years, whether it's kind of jewels and riches or whether it's kind of um, zoological wonders uh, that he's gathered in the ocean. Um Anorax in Year of Hell says to Chakotay, I think this ship is, is as much a museum as anything else, you know. And again, we, we know that he's been gathering these things from these civilizations he's been destroying. He's been, you, you know, keeping the, the finest wine of, of some, uh, you know, group of people that he's basically, you know, magicked out of existence so they don't exist anymore. So there's this weird sense of, I don't know, I suppose, is there something kind of almost decadent about that? Is there something, almost kind of more sinister about this idea of this kind of collector, this sort of uh, uh, makes you think of the most toys, you know, thinking of Star Trek, you know, someone who's kind of very into having all these things, but very indifferent to human suffering, to the kind of things that we might think are really important. 
I think it was interesting to, to pick up one thing I, I in my research, and I, this kind of blew my my little mind. Was like I just like um, there was a, a, a an interview. Well, it was a, more of a fact than anything. Like John Holland, who built the first sort of U.S. Navy submarine, said like the inspiration came from reading. 20,000 leagues under the sea and I always just assumed like the origin of like the submarine predated even kind of the books but for me I I almost don't think of it as a sinister I think of another show something like kind of Ronald D. Moore's Battlestar Galactica where the ship was a museum very much kind of this you know submarine style ship as well but yes it became a, a museum it had kind of you had your um I forget the name of the little ships and stuff like they had, but everything was kind of put into sort of museums and then it became an active ship again, but it became a lived in ship in terms of after they had this disaster, they customized it, they turned it into little kind of memorials. It became what they needed to become. Whereas you always think of something like Star Trek Voyager, for example, where it does kind of lean into some of this 20,000 leagues under the sea stuff a bit more than any of the other shows. And it was always very much a sterile ship. And it was, you, you think of it like it's gone 70,000 light years from home. But apart from perhaps like building the, um, stellar cartography area, turning the captain's, you know, mess into the, um, the galley and so on, it kind of stayed as a very polished ship, very much straight off the line. Even when it was incredibly damaged, it was always fine the next day. Whereas I always found it interesting where when the show would perhaps something like would lean into kind of, treating it like a, a museum and so on. And I, I think, a, you know, to, to go back to Ronald Deemer, when he came on for his brief stint on on Voyager, there was a really good interview with him after he left the show, you know, quite angry, you know, sharing his frustrations with the franchise in general, having gone from something like Deep Space Nine, which was so positive to Voyager. And he was like, why would you not make the ship incredibly personalized? Why would you, the, the idea that the ship would stay static is completely false that they should be building up these things, you know, tribute to the crew members that they've lost, the journey they're going on to making things a bit more kind of homely, whereas they just kept it to that regimented design. I always think of it not as something terrifying or scary, but something that makes it feel like a, a place to live. And, you know, obviously they're more sticking to kind of rules and the prime director right there, but I, I miss that kind of customization. I think that would have really added something to it. And of course, this episode, you know, up until the last, whatever, two minutes, uh, is the one episode that does that. I mean, we do see the ship changing. We do see, you know, bits ripped off. We see, you know, we get a whole, I mean, I don't know if they were using, I think they were probably using digital models by this stage, but if they hadn't been, you know, if this was still in the age of the kind of traditional huge models, they would have been uh, having to work out ways to kind of rip great holes in it and, you know, blast it to pieces and, and kind of keep it going. Um, I mean, this is the one, and, and of course it takes place over the course of, well, not quite a year, but, you know, the better part of a year. Uh, so there is that sense of, you know, from day to day and week to week changes are happening and they're being kind of written on the, uh, skin of the ship as well as on the characters. You know, Janeway gets scarred, Tuvok gets blinded. Um, you, you know, these are kind of, uh, in, if we're kind of thinking of continuity, these are things that kind of carry forward. They're not reset until the point at the very end where it is all reset and the whole thing uh, has to, you know, never have happened in order that everything can kind of go back in the box. And I know for many people, that's a kind of controversial element of the story. Um, and, you know, it doesn't really bother me, to be perfectly honest, 
largely because I think it's it's kind of set up that that's what's going to happen. Firstly, we know that's what's going to happen because they've pushed things too far. Do you know what I mean? They've kind of gone too far. It's a bit like where you have a story and, you know, uh, random, you know, lead characters start dying left, right and centre. You kind of know, okay, fine, well, this is not going to stick. You know, we're going to, they're going to have to uh, reverse this. But also, I suppose, because of the whole um, nature of the time ship and the fact that things can be changed back and forth constantly is, is there baked into the episode from the very beginning. So I suppose it's kind of not surprising that, um, you know, the situation we end up at at the end is not, uh, you, you know, kind of what we've been watching on the way there. But it is interesting, I think, you know, what it means for Star Trek to, to do that and to not to not have all the toys put back in the box, at least within the episode, you know, albeit that the episode itself kind of gets, uh, it gets kind of reversed or, or reset or whatever. Voyager almost kind of gets to do that sort of continuity that maybe Deep Space Nine was doing, but within the space of a two-parter. And then obviously is kind of forced to abandon it and everything has to kind of go back to how it was. And there is something slightly jarring, I think, about that final shot where the time ship blows up. It's all been incredibly intense. We've been watching this show that feels very different. It does feel more like a kind of battle star or something. Uh, and then there's a kind of it's not even a wipe, I don't think, but it's it's like Voyager then comes in again from the bottom left-hand corner and it's almost like this could be any season one or two episode of Voyager. Do you know what I mean? It just feels so conventional and so safe and so sterile, as you say. And it's reassuring, but it's also, I don't, I find it slightly jarring. It's just such a, you're being yanked so far back, I suppose, because you're being yanked right back to the kind of, the most sort of innocent, most um, unproblematic uh version of what Voyager is, is, you know, trying to be as opposed to this grittier, nastier, darker, sort of edgier stuff that we've had going on for the last 90 minutes. I suppose the people on the, on the other side, that, that people that probably did it incredibly well would be Enterprise. Even before you say season three, you know, it leans into that submarine element. It's like out there in probably the vastness of, of space and or if we're going to get like the Atlantic or the Pacific. And when the ship gets damaged and say something like uh, Minefield in season two, I think we probably all expected the next episode, it will, that huge tear in the hull is completely gone. But then they kind of lean into, well, you've sometimes you've got to find a port, a safe harbor to carry out repairs. And that might be quite significant, but they really push that element in, in sort of season three, where you think of something like Zati Prime and damage. This submarine style ship is incredibly broken, torn apart. And it carries that on all the way into early season four before it can even be fixed because there is no harbour, there's no safe port to dock in where we probably take that for granted in the next generation. You know, I, I watched what Kihu the other day, a huge, you know, eight decks are torn out, a nice hole in the hull. And then the episode ends with them all off to the nearest space station to kind of probably just get fixed again and on they kind of go. So you kind of, I think Enterprise very much... Yeah, it was that sort of submarine style ship, but it kind of lent itself to being quite authentic, I guess, in, in that respect too. Yeah, I think that's true. And in some ways, we kind of think of Enterprise as a show that is sort of going back a little bit to the sort of next gen Voyager, uh, sort of less 
experimental, less uh, kind of adventurous style of Star Trek. Um, you know, the the more the kind of UPN Star Trek rather than the, you know, whatever DS9 was kind of off in its own sandbox doing its own thing. Um, but it's true. They did, they did kind of lean into that stuff. And particularly in season three, they, you know, I guess in season three, Brannon Braga got to do his year long year of hell in effect. I mean, he, he wanted to do this as a longer story. I think it would have been great as a longer story. On the other hand, they obviously, they would have then had to reset it after more episodes and maybe people would have got even more fed up about that. Um, but with season three of Enterprise, they found a way to do it and they didn't have a big reset button. I mean, they kind of changed the stakes along the way and they kind of changed the, they moved the goalposts, I suppose you could say, along the way in terms of what was going on and what the mission was. Uh, but they did actually find, for my money anyway, you, you know, quite an interesting way out of it. Um, I just wanted to, to pick up a little bit on what you were saying earlier about Star Trek kind of leaning into this nautical stuff, whether it's Nicholas Meyer or whether it's, uh, you know, on, on Voyager. And Voyager leans into it quite a bit generally. I mean, when we see things like, um, funerals, they're given a very kind of, uh, naval, uh, flavor. You get the, the bosun's whistle being, um, blown, for example, in, um, is it one small step? The one where they find the old, uh, the old spaceship that has a real kind of nautical feel that moment. Um, this though is probably the most, uh, nautical inflected episode that Voyager does, or possibly even that Star Trek does in some ways, insofar as there's kind of references, uh, all over the shop. You know, you've got the, the watch that Chakotay has, um, replicated for Janeway is a replica of an ancient uh, sailor's watch. You get Tom Paris before he mentions Captain Nemo. He mentions Captain Bly, the captain of the bounty, uh, who obviously was um, his crew mutinied. So there's this kind of sense. They talk about the Titanic as well and these uh, bulkheads that they've developed. Um, and, and I suppose this mostly it centers on Tom Paris. Usually we think of Tom Paris's kind of historical period as being a bit more kind of like 1950s, 60s, uh, something in that kind of region. But here we find out that he, he does have this kind of passion that goes back to the, um, the, these kind of sailing adventures. Uh, and certainly in 30 days, he kind of talks about that and how, you, you know, he just loved anything to do with, um, any of these stories to do with the sea, these kind of heroic, um, seafaring stories but it is also an episode that quite explicitly uh sort of names its reference points in a way that i think is quite interesting because sometimes star trek can be a little bit coy or a little bit um you know and, and, and voyager in particular i think will will kind of do episodes that are actually a riff on a particular inspiration or a particular reference but doesn't ever acknowledge it necessarily this is one where it's kind of really it's acknowledged on screen insofar as paris literally calls aranax no there you go <laughs> uh it's acknowledged on screen insofar as paris literally calls anorax uh nemo so making the allusion to captain nemo in Twenty Thousand leagues under the sea but it's a parallel that runs between the two uh stories uh you know it's more than just about the captain i mean i think there are a lot of parallels between nemo and anorax um one of the most striking elements that links the two stories is, as I just um, confused myself, the the narrator in 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea is called Aranax and the villain in Year of Hell is called Anorax. Um, you know, this is not an accident. This is clearly another thing that is kind of leading us in that direction. Um, in both stories, a small group from the original ship uh, end up... Um, 
on the the villain's ship. So you know, in Twenty Thousand Leagues, it's Aranax, Nedland, and Conseil, Aranax's uh, sort of assistant. And there's this dynamic very much, which is replayed in the Voyager episode, where Aranax is sort of pally with. Um, with the villain with Nemo is kind of getting to know him is interested in him sort of respects him they have a kind of mutual respect um they're you, you know sharing their knowledge of the sea and you know talking about what books to read and so on Ned Land is in the kind of uh, is the Paris character you know Paris is playing the Ned Land role in the Voyager episode really who's the guy who's sort of saying yeah forget all of that I don't care how cultured and sophisticated and interesting this guy is we've got to get off this ship we've got to do something we've got to we've got to act basically and, and Ned Land in the original is uh, a harpooner so he's a kind of man of action uh, as opposed to the kind of professorial um Aranax. Interestingly, I don't feel this comes across in the in the novel unless I just didn't pick up on it, but in the in the movie of um 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, which was a, you know, very successful, very influential movie and I'm sure the writers of this Voyager episode would be familiar with as well as with the book. Um there's also a sense that Ned Land, who's played by Kirk Douglas in a very odd role, I think for him, he sort of plays him as a a bit of a kind of, you know, Dick Van Dyke in Mary Poppins. I think he's sort of going for something similar in it. it I don't know. To me, anyway, it doesn't quite come off. But there's an element of Ned Land in that movie where he's a bit of a womanizer. So he has this song that he sings at various points all about his conquests all around the world and so on. So again, you know, is there a sort of parallel with, with Tom Paris, who we think of as, you know, this kind of, uh, you know, maybe less so by this point going into, you know, into season four, but a guy with a bit of a reputation um and and i suppose in both these episodes in year of hell and in um 30 days actually you know we get this sense of tom paris as someone who's been kind of pinged back i mean talking about you know undoing the past and and pressing the reset button uh they're both episodes in which to some extent tom paris is reset to kind of early voyager tom paris insofar as him and chakotay are totally at odds and there's a kind of there's a moment where chakotay says to him look either we respect the command structure of voyager even though we're far away from voyager uh or we just you know fight this out with our fists basically <laughs> and i think the implication is and i'm going to win so you know you lose either way um in 30 days he kind of makes comment about the fact that you know yeah i'm in prison again so i'm kind of you know right back where i started almost so i don't know i think i think it's interesting that they borrowed not only the kind of the idea of this ship and this mysterious captain who's both sort of sophisticated and mon- you know ethically monstrous who's willing to do terrible things but also that they you know, in the characters from Voyager that they chose to interact with that ship, that they very much played up the same roles as in the source material. I think it's always interesting thinking about the character of Tom Paris. And I was, I listened to their, their latest podcast today. I'm sure this will date it somewhat, but it was Blood Fever. And like, they were like, mm. oh yes, and Tom Paris, you, you're a keen rock climber. They're like, when did that ever come up? And it's always one of these ones with, with Tom Paris that always seems, he seems to be, the cipher of like whatever we need a character to be to you know fit in tom paris will will be that one they seem to treat him in quite a a loose way with his development in a way compared to the others which were a bit more static you know i I think it's always that great line in sort of year of hell where he's like he starts talking about um the titanic and like jane was like oh i think you were kind of like i always thought of you as like automobiles oh yeah i'm also into big boats as well from the 20s he is just 
anything and it, you can almost sense that sometimes when you listen to robert duncan mcneil talk about the character is like the amount of curveballs that come up about tom paris of like oh and then he's this and he's that and it's like where did that come from is that the case i've never seen that like the character doesn't get to play and even when you t- you talk about the prison aspect there of, of 30 days that kind of came out of nowhere like they had they came up short with this episode in terms of like tom paris goes underwater everything that kind of goes on they were like oh we're, we're 10 minutes short why don't we just chuck him back into to prison? So even though there can be this sometimes grand design where you can think, oh yeah, like they definitely wanted Tom Paris to be this character perhaps in something like Year of Hell and then tie it in. There can also be that accidental one with 30 Days where it's like, oh, uh, right, what do we do? Oh, we'll put him in prison. That is fascinating. I didn't I didn't realise that. Um, it'll be interesting, you know, when the Delta Flyers do catch up to these episodes. That is a great podcast. I think really fascinating always to hear uh, Robert Duncan McNeil in particular, his his sort of memories and, and so on about these episodes and their kind of reflections on them years later when they often uh, don't really remember them very well at all. Um, I think that's true. Yes. Uh, we. I, I mean, it's not just Paris. Chakotay gets it even worse, mm-hmm. you know, whether it's boxing, whether it's, uh, you know, there's always something that, that history. conveniently, exactly, that conveniently Chakotay happens to be an expert in, even though he's never mentioned it or expressed any interest in it. I mean, I think that is just something about the way I suppose the thing is Voyager, well, well, they could bring in extra characters. I was going to say they can't bring in, you know, a stellar cartographer or whatever, but they could. I mean, there's plenty of crewmen that we haven't seen that they could, you know, if they need someone to be an expert on something. Uh, a bit like on the original series, you know, where they had a historian, they had a, they had a sort of costume specialist at one point, didn't they? They, they you know, they have all these specialists with quite niche, uh, areas of expertise. I suppose on Voyager, it, it has to be one of the like, senior staff who happens to be an expert on whatever it is and it it does generally come out of nowhere because everything in voyager sort of comes out of nowhere um but it's true in this episode you know it's 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 paris that kind of i suppose is the it is the one with the the historical interest and the expertise although as i say it's chakotay who manufactures that uh replica captain's watch so he's obviously got a kind of a mind to to this period of history as well in some ways uh maybe they both do but maybe then they're both the two characters who get lumped with all this stuff but then you could argue that he is the outlaw submarine captain you know you think of his and mm. um, was it the valjean his his Mackie ship he was the original outlaw submarine captain in terms of, of voyager in terms of caretaker so yeah i suppose he kind of does tie in a little bit to that that's true. Yes, that is true. He's he's the kind of Nemo in that sense. And Janeway is the one kind of trying to bring him to justice. I think there is a kind of interesting uh, aspect with both these stories. I mean, Nemo is a, is a kind of compelling villain. I think there's one reason that that book has had the kind of cultural impact that it has. Um, partly it's the kind of underwater world. Partly it is the kind of imagination uh in it of, you know, imagining, as you said, this submarine that, that didn't exist at the time. And also, you know, the breathing apparatus, the, all these things that didn't exist at the time, uh, you know, the kind of futurism of it. I think also Nemo is kind of a fascinating character. Uh, you know, he exists even beyond that book. I mean, he doesn't, he turn up in the, um, the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, that comic. And, yeah. you, you know, he's the kind of character that, and, and as a namesake, 
he's one of those kind of larger than life uh, characters. He's one of those, you, you know, he's going to be on your list of like top five or top 10 Star Trek villains, probably. Uh, although probably not yours, Lee, having listened to your track ranks on the <laughs> movie villains, where you managed to pick the most obscure, uh, <laughs> least obvious choices. But but he, he's he's kind of, he's going to be up there, right? Um, and I think that's partly because, again, he's a very compelling character. I mean, Nemo is partly compelling because he's quite mysterious. We actually, we never quite, learn the whole story behind what's going on for him but we do learn that there's an element of of kind of vengeance going on we learn that he's lost family uh because he he breaks down at one point and weeps in front of a, a picture of his wife and children i think anorax again uh similarly he has that lock of his wife's hair he's lost his wife and he describes it in terms of losing his family because um he uh, it, because of the children that would have been born because he's so obsessed with time. He kind of knows that he has, you know, this potential future timeline that's been robbed uh, from him, essentially, because his wife's been taken away. Interestingly, another character who, who kind of ties into that is Nero in the 2009 yeah. movie. Um, now, obviously, Nero, we might think of as being named after the the Roman emperor, which, you know, makes sense with the the Romulans and the Romans and so on. Uh, but equally, Nero is extremely close to Nemo as a, as a name for, you know, that captain. And he has a very similar story insofar as his wife, uh, who was pregnant, I think, at the time. So again, his wife and an, a child, albeit an unborn child, uh, were taken from him. And that's what kind of spurs his revenge. Um, so there is that kind of sense that there's a similarity between those characters, I suppose. And I think with both Nemo and Anorax, uh, what makes them compelling is precisely that they are kind of complex. You know, these are characters that uh, Aranax in 20,000 Leagues can sort of say of Nemo, well, he's he's a fascinating man. I'm kind of enthralled by him. Chakotay can say uh, to Paris in Year of Hell, um, Anorax is an enlightened man, he says. Um, you, you know, he's not just a thug. He's not just a kind of villain. Um, obviously, Paris sort of sees through that. He he, he thinks that's that's you know, as maybe, but the fact is what he's doing is terrible. And in both those stories, there's a moment where the villain does something that kind of uh, pushes this, you know, whether it's Aranax or Chakotay, their character who's sort of slightly enthralled to them, or or at least slightly kind of, I mean, Chakotay is, it becomes fascinated in this idea of understanding time and so on. He, see, he seems very seduced by it. Um, but in both those stories, the captain at some point does something awful. So in uh, 20,000 leagues. It's that he, he sinks this ship and all the people drown and it's horrific and, and it sort of changes slightly, uh, even Aranax's attitude towards him. Although he knows this is what he's been doing all this time to actually witness it, it seems to kind of change things slightly. Um, with Chakotay, again, it's the same thing. He knows that Anorax has been wiping out civilizations. I mean, he's committed genocide on like a, a vast scale. If you think of, you know, Kevin Uxbridge in Next Generation who wipes out one species, you know, Anorax has wiped out five before breakfast. I mean, the <laughs> scale of kind of devastation he's causing is is absolutely vast. Probably, you know, going to be up there with like the worst crimes in Star Trek, I suppose. But Chakotay doesn't really sort of engage with the horror of that until they witness it, you know, until he sort of sees him doing it. And then that seems to kind of, um, you know, that, that changes things a little bit once he's actually witnessed it. And obviously we don't, you know, all we see is like this beam being fired from orbit. We don't get even, uh, you, you know, what we did in Enterprise where you got a sort of glimpse of the kind of horror of this attack where huge numbers of people are being killed. It's very much not interested in, in the sort of horror 
of it on that kind of visceral level. Uh, but in both cases, you know, you've got these men who, although in some ways their motivations might be understandable and in some ways they even have kind of admirable qualities, they're both willing to do the most appalling, uh, you know, really shockingly appalling things um, and feel justified in doing that. It's always one of those ones. It always feels slightly disappointing where I think like the, the idea that time is the, the enemy is, is something that Star Trek mm. does quite well, quite often. But in this one, it, like you have this element where, as you see, it's wiping out these planets, these civilizations. And you, as you see, it's one of the most shocking possible things that you can do is just wiping something from existence. And I think that impact is slightly lost on us where it's happening so frequently, but it's mm. nameless species. It means nothing to us. It's like, oh, who, like you just see it arrive at the beginning and it's like this CGI city that just poofs away. It, it's not like it's a Talaxians or even a Kazon mm. where we're like, oh, oh. God, imagine they didn't exist. There's no impact on that. But as you think of something like Remember Me, where it plays into that horror element, where, yes, it's slightly different, where people just cease to exist. People like, no, I've never heard of that person. And it is like a horror where it drives people mad and so on. And I think that's an element that's kind of lost in Year of Hell is that personal toll of what's going on outside of the ship. It's it's good that it's so gripping what's going on within the ship in terms of the damage that's being done and its effect. But in terms of all this outside kind of genocide, it doesn't register and it could be really compelling horror, I guess. I think that's true. And and the sense of... Yeah, I mean, who knows? Maybe if they'd had a three-parter, they could have gone into more of this. I mean, they've already got to juggle everything that's happening on Voyager with everything that's happening on the Krenim ship. And I do think we get, in some ways, because we're kind of jumping, oh, suddenly we jumped two months or something, sometimes it can feel like we're getting a little bit shortchanged on this story. I mean, it'd be interesting, you know, I don't know if this was one of the episodes that they novelised, but if they did, you know, whether that would give an opportunity to sort of bulk it out a little bit because also you know by the end you've got Janeway has formed this alliance of you know sort of mini or maybe not a mini federation that might be going a bit far but you know kind of precursor to what she does in the void where she kind of gets all these people together you know she gets this kind of ragtag group of uh, ships from various different species together to join and sort of you know take the fight to to anoraks um that's another aspect of the story that we don't see anything of we don't really know who any of those people are you, you know what what their story is who the captains are who that do you know what i mean like there's mm-hmm. there's all this kind of stuff that we're not seeing uh in this story and equally you're right you know these planets that are being you know winked out of existence um and it's interesting i suppose because the because it is sort of telling a kind of it is interested in the kind of geopolitics of this area of space because that's what is that that's sort of the the gist of 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 what's changing in the episode you know we start off and i can't remember you, you know we start off with the the zal isn't it they're the kind of dominant species at the start of the episode and the zal ambassador tells them oh yeah don't worry about the krenim they used to be the big shots around here but we fought them and you know uh despite their temporal weapons we managed to to win ultimately and now they're a bit of a has-been uh kind of lot um and then obviously you know we have this version where the krenim are much more powerful and have these much bigger ships and so on so it does sort of feel like it's an episode that's interested in the balance of power between all these different species um but ultimately we don't really get to see enough of that to to get more than a glimpse of it. We sort of have to imagine that somehow for ourselves. And I I think in some ways, maybe that is a little bit of a shame. 
Yeah, and I suppose it's just there was it was just the reality there was so little breathing room to to kind of do these things and flower it. But you know, I, I think it could have just especially if you've got the ship just roaming the quadrant where it does feel like it is just all within this small area of space where I think it could have been more interesting at kind of floating around, especially if you've got hundreds and hundreds of years. You don't just have to kind of kick around the sort of same street. You could be kind of going into Borg space potentially. You could be going to where the Kazon are, you could be going to where you know the the vadwar all these different species you know it could be it could make it a really huge thing because for all the times that voyager encounters um anorax's ship it's only like a couple of times so it d- d- didn't always have to feel like they were kind of boxers kind of dancing around each other that's a good point i mean it's presumably a vast area of space that they're fighting over because this was a massive empire you know the the krenim uh, you know, they're called an imperium. I mean, interesting, I suppose there's this parallel again with, uh, imperial France in 20,000 leagues and the kind of, uh, uh, and this sort of imperial legacy, I suppose, that's part of the background maybe to that, um, story. But you, you know, this was a great, great empire in space. You're right. Also in time. I mean, I don't know that it's something that necessarily registers that strongly, but th- they say they've been doing this for 200 years and obviously they're protected from time. So it's like, that's meaningless on one level. Um, but there is this kind of sense of, yeah, the scale of it is huge. I mean, you'd expect that we'd be dealing with the repercussions of this for seasons of Voyager. Do you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. this, this, this area of space has got to be so vast. It's going to take them ages to get across it, whatever configuration it ultimately ends up in. I wonder also whether this sense that, you know, they've been on the ship for 200 years, even though they're not aging, it, it sort of suggests something maybe of the idea that, you know, for Captain Nemo's ship in 20,000 Leagues, so our characters, they're kind of, they're captured, they're made prisoners. Well, they're kind of rescued. You know, their ship is, is, is damaged. They're in the sea. Nemo lets them come on board, but the condition is basically they can never leave. Um, so it's kind of a life sentence. You know, they are prisoners and they're kind of suffering a life sentence. Equally, although Anorax is, you, you know, is, is goal oriented, is hopefully he's going to fix this thing one day and everything's going to go back to how he wants it. And then everyone can leave and, you know, probably dismantle their old ship and kind of go back to their lives. And he can have his, you know, happy time on Kiana Prime with his wife and his future children and so on. Um, at the same time, it's gone on for so long, you know, as, as the, the younger guy says, um, you know, everyone he knows has died. They, they, you know, they have effectively served a life sentence on this ship because, um, you know, they've, they've given up everything in the same way as the characters in 20,000 Leagues are being expected to give up everything, to give up any hope of ever, uh, ever going home, of ever seeing their loved ones again. It's almost a complete contradiction where it doesn't even make logistical sense. Like, you have this ship going around this small area of the Delta Quadrant for 200 years trying to change history. Well, they are completely stuck in this little time bubble where they are as young as they were when they started 200 years ago. If they were successful in bringing back their planet, it doesn't bring back their wife, their loved ones. Like, that. the logic of that doesn't make sense to me whatsoever because... If they managed to bring back, like, what was it, restoration, 100% restoration, until even, like, the last blade of grass, well, that's 200-odd years ago. The people that they are fighting to bring back, unless they just want to bring back their planet, are never coming back. So it's always that odd bit at the end where he's, like, reunited with his wife. It's like, but that's 200-odd years in the past. She is gone. Like, how is she alive now? Like, But I must say, it is a nice ending in a way where it has that almost horror element where it's like, they've killed the bad guy, 
but there he is. He's still working on his plan. Like in, you know, a couple hundred years, he might do this all again. It, like th- their plan just ultimately makes no sense in the end, which always slightly bugs me. That had never really occurred to me, I have to say, before. But um, I just sort of assumed somehow their time on the ship got erased along with the changes that they'd made. But it, it does sort of raise this interesting question. You know, when did this 200 years start? I mean, I, I, I'm i not great with time travel stories. This is the second episode in a row where we've been talking about time travel stories and I've been getting my uh, self tied up in knots with it. But, you, you know, because one thing that I noticed looking into this episode, and I'd never quite understood this before, is that there's the episode before and after in the previous season where Kess has some kind of interaction with the Krenim and there's a Krenim torpedo, I think, that kind of plays into that episode. Now, before and after in this episode, my understanding is that Anorax has undone the events of before and after uh, by the time we get into this, like before the start of Year of Hell, but that by the end of Year of Hell, the Year of Hell has been erased, but presumably everyone... Remember, I can't remember how before and after ended, but you, you know, do they remember whatever Kess told them from that episode? Does she carry? Did she carry? I can't. I can't even remember. But anyway, that that's the kind of status quo that we return to. But then it's true. Like, where in time are we? I think we're meant to just. It it, it goes back to day one, doesn't it? So that that year of their two hundred years has reset, and and Anorax was there. He was at home. But he wasn't at home then, was he? That's it's true. It's no, a good point. and it's day one of Voyager entering kind of was it Krenum space where it's like, oh, thank you very much. Yeah, this is areas in dispute. Be careful. Okay, thank you very much. Whereas that two hundred years should tech like that reset, unless they like live an incredibly long life, doesn't like that that person being in their house should be like two hundred odd years ago. So unless that is like a flashback to two hundred years earlier and then day one is actually two hundred odd years in the future when we sort of see Voyager enter Crenum space for the first time. It's it's one of those things like it just when you just stop and think about it and for years it never even clicked with me. But then I just sat down and thought, oh, that makes no sense. Well, you've ruined it for me today. <laughs> <laughs> I mean I've been watching this for what, like twenty five years or something and it never even occurred to me. But that is an interesting point whether the logic of it kind of holds up and obviously that's always sort of a danger with time travel stories i suppose is that they're sort of notoriously difficult to uh you know to put together in a way that makes perfect logical sense and you know maybe this one doesn't i i I do quite like i mean i like the idea that he gets this sort of happy ever after actually janeway is the one who gives him what he wants effectively and that she sends him back there but then also there is as you said this kind of horror movie moment where the last shot of the episode it lingers on these time you you know his same whatever those uh wibbly lines you you know timeline things are he's kind of studying them obsessively again um and there is that sort of sense that this could kind of go on and on forever it's a bit of a problem i think i mean i have to say you know we had it with Enterprise, with the Temporal Cold War, we have it now in Discovery with this idea that there were temporal wars, which I think are meant to be separate from that and are an important part of the kind of period between, you know, whatever the latest track we have between the sort of Picard era, I suppose, and this uh, future era and Discovery, that there's going to be this kind of massive uh, galaxy-spanning temporal war or wars of some kind. I find them a bit of a headache because I sort of feel like what, 
how do you ever end a temporal war? Do you know what I mean? Can't you just, I mean, it's a bit of a problem like with the Borg in first contact. Okay. So that didn't work. Why didn't they just try again the next day and, and do it slightly differently? Do you know what I mean? Like what's the, what, once you establish that you can kind of wage war in that way, can't you just keep going until you win? Uh, do you yeah, know what it's, I mean? it's like, like Janeway says, like time travel gives her a sore head. I mean, yeah, it makes ultimately, uh, it falls apart under the, like the slightest bit of scrutiny. It's, it's absolutely ridiculous. Like, yeah, like what's to stop? And even just like practical things where what's to stop, uh, the Borg cube just going into the past in Borg space and then just like sauntering to, um, 2024, um, some, uh, like earth without any sort of starships along the way it's, it just all makes no sense and i suppose it's one of those ones you kind of for better or worse with star trek sometimes you're kind of like okay i'm just going to go along with it. it is a silly sci-fi show and i'm going to try and take it seriously but i'm not going to get bogged down in it it's it can only it can only take away from the enjoyment i think maybe that's true maybe it's not something we need to think through too carefully i mean maybe jules verne is, is wise to not necessarily give us all the information about, you, you know, I mean, actually like Nemo's backstory is left fairly oblique. It's fairly kind of, you know, it's sort of hinted at, but it's not really explained in great detail. Maybe sometimes that's the way to go is to, is to not give us too much detail so we can't pick holes in it. But, um, I don't know. I mean, one of the things that struck me about 20,000 leagues, as I say, is this, this sense that there are obviously parallels with Star Trek and with specific Star Trek episodes, but also just this kind of, um, I suppose this kind of futurism, this world, this idea of, you know, creating this vessel that is so impressive. And you even, you get Captain Nemo doing the kind of speech where he says, you know, how many decks there are, the size, the weight, you know, he's kind of talking through the stats, a bit like, uh, in Caretaker, we get that with Voyager, you know, they, it's got how many decks it's got, you, you know, the, this sort of, um, uh, almost like a sort of car salesman or something telling you what all the features are. Um, and again, in first contact, I think Picard and Lily, doesn't he have that moment where he's sort of, he's, he's talking her through what, what the enterprise is and how sort of big and impressive it is. You know, that there is this kind of sense. This is a great, I mean, it's an iconic vessel and particularly that Disney version is an iconic, as I say, sort of iconic piece of design. Uh, I mean, I discovered in, I don't think it's there anymore, but in Euro Disney for years, I think they had a, a model of the Nautilus that you could go, it was, you know, it was kind of underwater and you could go down some steps, obviously in a building or whatever, and you, you ended up in a kind of museum, but they, they made it seem as if you were going inside this submarine and the sort of, you know, the thrill of being able to do that it would be a bit like being able to go inside the Enterprise and, you know, uh, poke around it. There is something about these kind of fantastical, um, vessels that is very seductive, is very appealing. Um, and, and they are, as I said, you know, it is very kind of iconic. Also, another thing that struck me, they use, you know, in terms of this kind of futurism, I said they, okay, so there's a submarine, there's submarine, uh, you know, basically like kind of scuba, scuba gear ahead of its time. They also, um, they don't shoot the animals that they're hunting. They stun them, you know, like very much like in Star Trek, they shoot these kind of pellets that, um, electrocute them. Uh, so ag again, I suppose it's that kind of, you know, sci-fi futurism, um, and there are a lot of parallels between the kind of sci-fi futurism of space and the sci-fi futurism of the sea. Uh, I mean, we saw it again with, I don't know if you ever watched Sequest, but that was basically a Star Trek show only underwater, uh, you, you know, in, in all but name. It was kind of uh, very much drawing on the sort of Star Trek model, but doing it on this kind of futuristic submarine. Uh, it even had, you know, a dolphin, like supposedly is, is down in Station Ops, uh, kind of as a <laughs> member of the crew that we got to see. 
Yeah, I've 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 never seen Sequest. Like it, it's one of those ninety shows that I just if it wasn't on Sky, I never got the chance to see it. Oh, you missed out. I was quite struck by this point you made earlier that that time as a kind of agent, time as an enemy uh, in Year of Hell is something that Star Trek kind of plays with. Obviously, we've seen it with you know Malcolm McDowell in Star Trek Generations. Time is the fire in which we burn, and so on, and, and kind of picked up again in Picard, I suppose. Um, one of the things that I suppose marks Anorax as being mad as well as bad is this sort of obsession with time. And certainly uh, Paris basically thinks he's lost it, you, you know, and I suppose his crew does as well, because effectively they, they kind of mutiny at the end, uh, or at least, you know, one of them does for sure. Um, and there's this sense that he's this kind of superstition is almost his undoing somehow. But weirdly, there's a very strong parallel, I think, between Anorax and Janeway, because Janeway also at the end of Year of Hell is shown as being deeply superstitious about Voyager. You know, she has that conversation with Tuvok where she's saying, you know, this is not just a ship. This is, it is a member of our family. It needs us. You know, the same kind of sentimentalizing, the same kind of superstitious, irrational, uh, attitude coming from, you know, someone who we, we keep being told is a scientist. Um, it, it's interesting. I don't know whether that's deliberate or not, but it does seem to kind of draw a sort of parallel between them. Um, and obviously it's Janeway who at the end of Year of Hell, al- although the Krenim ship is the thing that looks, you know, it doesn't, lo- looks not unlike a submarine or, or not unlike the Nautilus. You know, it's, it's long and kind of vaguely cylindrical and it's got a kind of pointy bit at the front. Uh, it's actually Janeway and Voyager that ends up being the battering ram and being the one that, you know, smashes into the, the ship to destroy it in exactly the way that um, Captain Nemo does in 20,000 Leagues. So she's kind of, I don't know. And I think in that episode, I mean, it's a great Janeway episode, but she, she goes quite far. I mean, there are quite a few Voyager episodes where Janeway, you know, slightly crosses a few lines, if you know what I mean. I mean, a lot of people uh, love Equinox, for example, which is one of those episodes where she kind of, you know, goes a little bit too far, maybe. Uh, and obviously we see Cisco doing the same thing a couple of times in DS9 uh, with, well, for the uniform you mentioned, and again with um, uh, Pale Moonlight and episodes like that. But um, this, I think, is definitely another one where she is, you know, she's making questionable decisions. She's She, she, she is somewhat obsessed. I mean, Anorax is somewhat obsessed, but she is also... Uh, somewhat obsessive you know she says that she threatens to shut down the doctor and so on fair enough it's a stressful situation you know no one's going to be at their best but i just i wonder if that is another added element in there that somehow there are these two captains facing off against each other and they're both being sort of slightly destroyed to some extent by this by this impossible uh awful situation that they're, they're they're in as you say like this kind of dance that they're in between the two of them um you know they both have to uh let go of all that to erase all of that to go back to the kind of um cheerful happy you, you know status quo where Janeway's I don't know contemplating whether do we take this route or that route and it's all quite kind of banal and, and cheerful and Anorax is you know going off to have dinner with his wife I think it's interesting, like, 
kind of what you touched on there. I was, I was almost reminded, and it, it never clicked till now. It's like it's similar to Khan and Kirk in Wrath of Khan. They never physically mm. face off. You see them; they chat. Mm. I think at most twice, maybe once actually, like over the view screen at the end of part one. Like even at the climax of of part two, there's no chat with them. I think on the view screen, it's been a, a couple of weeks since I last watched the episode, but I think it's just that one moment where like they only have ever one interaction over a screen over pretty much just shy of a year and i I find that interesting as well that the ship you know as you say voyager becomes like it's a human it's a character we accept that but like i i find that fascinating the what paris touches on where he's like you know anorax has viewed time as like almost a physical construct and so on that can be bent to his will like it's something that is just completely cerebral that he believes can be bent to his will and it's become this sort of almost a manifestation of a, a similar to a predator the pred time, uh, you know time is a predator that's like stalking us you know in a way that's kind of going on here with with something like um, kind of anorex it's it's so interesting to see kind of the duality of them them both and sort of how they've humanized two very very different things one physical and one that is you know without kind of form there's also this idea i suppose that anorex is being punished uh, i mean i think he says it himself you know I suppose he's being punished in a kind of classical Greek sense for hubris. You know, he, he thinks he can understand time, the mysteries of the universe. He thinks he can kind of unravel that. And well, a bit like Picard in tapestry pulling on his, his strand, what Anorax has done, he's pulled on one of the timelines and he's screwed the whole thing up in a kind of horrific way. And he's sort of being punished almost for that in this very personal way but then i think that's kind of similar where i'm sure you've had conversations or maybe even thoughts yourself i know i certainly have at points where you think of what we've gone through the past 15 months where we have been isolated our lives have changed by and large for the for the worst there is good to be found there but there are times where i think we've probably all felt is the universe out to get us? What have I done to deserve this? That we have viewed something that's completely out with our con- complete control as we are being punished for what did we do? And it, it, it can ignore a person's mind. And, you know, if, if we think the way that people's mental health has been affected by 15 months in isolation, what must it be like for, for 200 years where, you know, if you were to probably be one of those people where you had an opportunity to go, 15 months, you know, go back to that wet market in Wuhan, make one change to the timeline. And you might try and think, oh, I can make things all the better and, you know, there won't be a COVID-19. But when you pull at that tapestry, what would completely change? You know, what has been a, a positive that has come out of it that would completely unravel for someone else? People that we've lost, we would get back, but who else would we lose potentially in the process? It, it'd be one of those ones. I think you... I'm always fascinated by the butterfly effect, the, the idea that, you know, if a butterfly, you know, flaps its wings in sort of um, Africa or something like that, it can cause a tornado elsewhere and stuff like that. It's just a fascinating thing. And there's times where you think, as, especially as you get older, if I'd made that decision then, where would have happened? And it's sometimes fascinating to think about where those little butterfly flutters could have could have changed people's lives. And it almost terrifies you, you know, I, you think of it when you're in a new relationship or you've got a new job or good things have happened. There's also the equal side where you think to yourself, if I hadn't have met that person on that day, if I hadn't gone to that pub, 
I might not have met that person. Or even think about your parents, where I think of like my parents, they met in a bar. What happens if my dad was hung over that day and didn't go? I wouldn't exist. And it can be terrifying that just that one small incident or pull of a change of a timeline can completely destroy and, and ruin lives. It can be can be very, very scary and probably can drive people to some crazy anxiety. Well, that's an interesting point. And obviously, you know, Paris talks about anoraks as being, I think he says he's paranoid, he's a megalomaniac. You, you know, he, he talks about him in terms of kind of uh, his poor mental health, essentially. And it is very much this idea that he's trying, to, he's trying to exercise a level of tr- control that really shouldn't be possible. You know, I suppose there is that sense that this is, it's a bit like, you know, meddling with nature, isn't it? Meddling with time. It's not going to, it's not going to work out well. And I suppose like those kind of Jurassic Park, don't you? You know, yeah, yeah, people exactly. never stopped it. You know, they, yeah. they did this, this, the scientists, and then bang, that's it kind of out in the world. You've got your time ship and you never even thought if you even should. <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, it's also, I think, that, that idea that it kind of ends in madness, this kind of, uh, obsessing over these things. I mean, there's that Voyager episode, uh, latent image, isn't there, where the doctor can't, you, you know, is kind of, his, his program is caught in a kind of loop about this decision that he made. And, you know, why did he make that decision? Why didn't he do something else? And what could have worked out differently? And so on. In some ways, like those kind of, uh, sort of thought experiments or those kind of, you know, daydreams or whatever you want to call them that, you, that you're saying, you know, what if this hadn't happened? What if this didn't happen? Uh, ultimately, they do lead to madness in a way because I suppose they, maybe they expose how little control we have in some ways. And, it, and I think it's Anorak's attempting to have complete control that is what sort of destroys him in a way. Um, you know, they are sort of overreaching the Krenim. This idea that they can win with, with these temporal weapons is going to be ultimately what sort of brings them down that's what brings their empire down i suppose um is is trying to you know do something that is really in the hands of what god or the universe or you know whatever you want to see it as it's it's almost kind of blasphemous um this idea it also just when we were talking about punishment it it kind of it reminded me a little bit of there's a line um in richard the second the shakespeare play where richard the second says i wasted time and now doth time waste me which is a little bit i mean you know and he's he's in prison at, at this point he's kind of um you know sort of lamenting how he got there but i suppose there's that sense you know for anorax it's very literally he's kind of meddled with time and now time is meddling with him you know time is sort of um getting its own back somehow. I mean, personally, I find these kind of superstitious notions a bit silly. Uh, (laughs) Do you know what I mean? I I can't help seeing that that in Paris's terms is kind of mad, but I suppose they are things that we, we associate with a villain in particular. Um, I mean, you think of Captain Ahab as well. You know, Captain Ahab has this sort of superstitious hatred of this whale. You know, the whale is a force of nature. The whale no more has a vendetta against him than, you, you know, than a, a storm does or than, than times after anoraks or whatever. But it's that idea. It is that kind of paranoid idea that leads to not just destruction, but this kind of self-destruction. But when you think about Anorax and Janeway, I think there's that interesting element. You're right, they have very little relationship with each other. Um, and it, it's strange that Kirk and Khan have so little relationship with each other because in the Wrath of Khan, it's so intensely personal. You know, it is very much Khan wants to punish Kirk. He wants to hurt Kirk. He wants to do to him what's, what he feels Kirk has done to him. I mean, in Year of Hell, actually, 
Anorak says uh, quite explicitly, he says, I bear you no hostility, but you've diverted me from my mission. It's this kind of idea. It's not personal. Uh, it's nothing against you. You know, you're just in the wrong place at the wrong time. Uh, I've got to do what I've got to do. You, you know, it's kind of, um, and, and he, you know, with, with Chicote and even, you know, he tries it with Paris. He does, he lays on the banquet. He, you know, gets them the fancy wine and, and so on. He tries to make them happy and comfortable and so on on his ship. There's this sense of like, we can be civil to each other. We can socialize. We can kind of, you know, get on, uh, on a personal level, but don't expect you're going to have any impact on my sort of deranged genocidal scheme uh because you know that's separate basically i have i have my mission and i'm not going to be uh there's not going to be any kind of deviation from it um but at the same time on a kind of personal level there there is no hostility there is no uh they're not it's not i mean you mentioned nemesis there isn't really a sense of a nemesis there isn't that kind of relationship there isn't that kind of hatred um they are just circumstances have put them at odds with each other somehow yeah, it is that. And it's even like the one thing I just never buy is I never buy into how easily Chakotay goes along with, with everything. Like he has no skin in this game. Like he's, he's along with restoration, but it's not like he's like, you know, we could have like, you think of some of the Maquis members that have been lost by this point of the show or Hogan or other kind of characters uh, along the way where they're like, you know, we, if, if we'd made this change, you know, we could have had like kept Voyager's crew or we could have got them back home, etc. There's nothing where it's kind of like, it's just another person going slightly mad with time. And there's like Tom Paris kind of like hitting his head against the wall. Like it, I, I just don't buy into Chakotay, how he kind of gets kind of wrapped up in it. And as you say, like, there's nothing personal. I mean, at, at most it's kind of like you get the glib remark at the end where it's like, um, or oh, put Jane out of her misery, but that's just kind of like action movie schlock sort of thing. There's, there, I think that's dynamic would have been more interesting over the potential course of the season. Yeah, I suppose that that's a possibility. I, I know what you mean. Like Chakotay, Chakotay sort of Paris has the easy role in a sense, insofar as. He is, is saying what we expect our crew to be saying. Chakotay has to sort of convince us. It's sort of always the way when someone's loyalty is in question or there's like, you know, a temptation for them to do something that we know is wrong or whatever. In some ways, I think that's the harder one to write and to play and to kind of believe in. Um, I suppose we just have to believe A, that he thinks it might be possible and that they've seen so much damage already by this point. You know, Tuvok's been blinded. I don't know what else has happened. Lots of people have been killed in this, you know, in this particular year, uh, that he's thinking, oh, if we can undo all of that, that would be great. And we could kind of avoid this terrible, you know, situation. Um, B, I suppose we're meant to believe that he is genuinely like Anorak's fascinated by time. I mean, Tom Paris says, oh, he's flattering you, you know, saying that, that you want, you know, the two of us, we understand it. These, you know, stupid underlings don't get it. Um, maybe there's something, I mean, Chakotay is into his kind of spiritual beliefs. He's into this kind of, uh, sort of transcendental stuff. You know, maybe he's, he's interested in this idea of, you know, these sort of rivers of time and these kind of, you know, uh, being able to, to understand that somehow. He is someone who's interested in, in kind of going beyond the, the human level of experience somehow. Um, I don't know. I, I agree. It's a little bit of a stretch. I think in 20,000 leagues, it makes more sense because Aranax is a scientist. He studies the sea. He's been given the most amazing opportunity, basically, to see things that he could never have 
witnessed to uh you, you know to gain a kind of first-hand understanding of this thing that he is a sort of scholar of effectively um and also and he too is being flattered i mean nemo is you know gets his his books out i think and uh, you, you know sort of says how wonderful they are and so on and, and um you know tells him what an important figure he is and nemo is very much you know uh like he's interested in aranax because he thinks he's a sort of um kindred spirit and a sort of intellectual and so on and the others you know ned land uh he doesn't really have any time for he i guess thinks he's just a bit of a thug or something um but i suppose so i suppose you sort of buy it a little bit more then that it's not just this question of like what's the wisest way is it safe to escape or are we safer here but there's also for aranax there's something very tempting about staying on board and going along with what nemo wants him to do because it's you know it's all his wildest dreams come true i mean he would happily uh stay on board for a year i think just you know might rather not stay on board for the rest of his life you can imagine that being an element where if they'd lent into you know that i suppose like this is a, a you know brandon braga's got his fingerprints all over this is like a horror element where you can imagine like say for example there was a bit of an uprising on the ship the kind of like we got towards the end of part two where it's like okay we're going to essentially put them off the plank of this you know krenum ship and then you just see them kind of like be pushed out in space where they just cease to exist you know out with that bubble you can imagine that being kind of horrifying where it's like you're not just going to die you are just going to be like ejected from the ship and you will cease to to exist in that bubble i think that could have been quite a a terrifying and kind of interesting image for how do you keep a crew in line for 200 odd years on a a mission like that i refuse to believe they would have all been kind of willing participants in a way yeah that's an interesting point for sure i mean even between chakotay and paris we see a kind of mini uh, almost sort of mini mutiny where Paris is basically saying, why should I follow your orders anymore? Yeah, you're right. I mean, what is this military structure or whatever on the Krenim ship that everyone has been going along with this for, so, you know, it takes 200 years and, uh, and the kind of influence of Paris stirring things up as a sort of agent provocateur almost, you, you know, kind of, kind of winding them up to, uh, to get them to that point. You're right. I mean, why are they still following this guy? I suppose maybe they're following him because they want to get back. You know, they, it, it's, it's this kind of like, Oh, I was nearly there. You know, I nearly had it. We were so close. Uh, it's like a gambler, isn't it? I suppose there is an element of the gambler in Anorax that who, you know, they win a load of money. They gamble it. They lose it all. And they're desperate to get back to where they, you know, he's desperate to throw the dice one more time and get back to where he was. He's convinced he can do it because he did it before. Uh, and so he just can't give up somehow. Um, but I agree, sort of from a psychological point of view, you kind of imagine they might have, they might have got here, you know, a few decades earlier, really. Yeah, definitely. Just one final thought that struck me. I mean, you mentioned earlier stellar cartography, and obviously this is the episode that introduces stellar cartography. And it's interesting because we have this big speech about, you know, the kind of, the, the, the sort of welcome to stellar cartography. This is our new set, blah, 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 at the beginning of part one. And then at the end, at the end of part two, when things have reset, they sort of have to mention stellar cartography because obviously that is something that does carry forward. This is like one of those weird, uh, continuity things that actually Voyager does sometimes. It's a bit like when Kess breaks up with Neelix because she's possessed by an alien despot. And then in the next episode, they're still broken up, even though she's not anymore. <laughs> it's kind of like, okay. So, you know, or, or I don't know, Tom and Bellana's wedding, which happens to, not Tom and Bellana, and then we don't see it when it happens to actual Tom and Bellana. Um, they sort of play these weird games, but the, the stellar cartography, I think, is interesting because 
the idea of it is to give them a shortcut, it's to give them a, a faster route. And this is something, again, that comes up again and again in um, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, is these sort of secret passages. Um, they take a passage under the Suez Canal at one point, for example. They're always astonished at how quickly they've got from one place to another because Nemo knows these sort of underwater routes. It's almost like there's a kind of network of wormholes that he's sort of traversing in this ship. Do you know what I mean? That he seems to be able to travel impossible distances somehow in, incredibly quickly. It reminds me of like the mycelial network in, in Discovery a little bit, isn't mm-hmm. it? Just sort of like these tunnels that they can kind of go through. Well, I think that's interesting because obviously one of the things that has kind of changed over the course of Star Trek history is this, this sense of like how far away things are, if you know what I mean, and how fast these starships go. Whether you're in contact, I mean, you know, are you getting orders that take days to respond to and therefore you're kind of pretty much on your own are you in constant communication with the people giving the orders you know can you and and star trek's never been all that consistent can you warp to back to earth in two hours two days two months <laughs> you know what is it i don't know i mean i've never sat down and tried to work it all out i know you know larry nemacek has his uh amazing stellar cartography and people have gone into a lot of detail on the maps and and all these sorts of things but um there is something almost slightly magical about it i think uh, just as you say, you know, the mycelial network is taking that even further and saying you can basically jump from one place to another kind of as if by magic. But I think there is a sort of, um, feeling again that, you, you know, Captain Nemo also has access to this sort of magical, magical space time. I suppose that's what it's about is like, you know, the relationship between time and space, which obviously in the, you know, ancient age of, uh, you know, nautical exploration and so on, ships at sea, was quite extreme, you know, in that it, journeys could take weeks, months, you know, you were, you could be very cut off potentially. Uh, whereas in Star Trek, the feeling is generally that you're, you're, you're not cut off to that extent. Voyager obviously is more cut off because they've gone, you know, they've gone further than anyone's been before. They've, they've, they've gone way out of their sort of normal sphere. Discovery again, I suppose in season three has sort of reintroduced that with this idea that, okay, dilithium's gone. Uh, subspace communication isn't working properly. So they've kind of reverted to this earlier sort of pre Star Trek model of, um, what it means to be out at sea or out in space somehow and to be cut off and to be, you know, isolated, uh, in a way that maybe is, is more realistic to our own situation in the universe where, you, you know, if we can get to Mars, that's going to be a massive big deal and going to take years and years. Um, and the rest of the galaxy is just sort of impossibly uh, cut off from us for the time being. Yeah, it is interesting to think of it like that, isn't it? Just like it, it just, it's one of those things, I suppose, similar to time. If you just stop and think about it, it just would totally drive you kind of, kind of mad, isn't it? But I think like going back to, to Enterprise, you know, that when it worked with that kind of nautical submarine feel, you think of like early season one episodes where they're laying the transmitters for those communications back to, to Earth. And, you know, if one of them was destroyed, well, you're kind of goosed really, aren't you? <laughs> well, yeah, absolutely. Just as much as, you know, if something goes wrong on your submarine and the, uh, you know, the, the water comes in, there is, there is a moment actually, which is very much, uh, reminding me a little bit of Shuttlepod one. There's a point in, um, 20,000 leagues where the, the Nautilus gets stuck and they're, they're both running out of air and freezing at the same time because they're under the North Pole, the South Pole. I can't remember. I think they go to the South Pole, don't they? Cause Captain Nemo wants to stick his flag on the South Pole. Um, so they have this sort of moment of, uh, 
uh, yeah, they're kind of they're running out of air and they're running out of heat and everything. I mean, there are obviously a lot of parallels, I think, between these sort of submarine stories and these kind of space stories. There's there's a reason they're they're a good fit, um, and that as much as Paris seems to be interested in uh, nautical literature more generally, as indeed are many characters in Star Trek. I mean, we see uh, Jake Sisko reading. Um, Horatio Hornblower novels, for example, you, you, you know, lots of characters express an interest in that kind of age of those sailing ships. Um, but that, that this story, this sort of proto submarine story, this kind of, uh, early, I suppose it's a kind of early sci-fi story as well is the one that really, um, underpins this Voyager episode. Uh, and it's a great story. You, you know, it's a great book. I, I mean, I don't know about you, the Disney film, I sort of feel, the production design is fantastic. Uh, some of the effects are not bad for the time. It's a bit, it, it, for me, it doesn't quite work. I sort of feel if there's, if there's any of the Disney back catalogue that could do with a remake for Disney Plus or whatever, uh, that would be one that I would be putting on the list, I think. I don't know about you. I mean, obviously, <laughs> it's, 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 it'll it's happen. a classic like, film. You know the rate you know. they're going through these things. But there'll <laughs> be a prequel be first. Yeah. Yeah, well, it, it it could be fun, I think. In the meantime, there is, uh, I listened to on Audible, um, a, a sort of radio drama type adaptation of this story, which is actually written by the guy who, you know, um, Destination Star Trek, the guy who's the sort of master of ceremonies, Tony oh, yes. Lee. Um, he is also a script writer and, and comic writer, I think. And he, and he adapted it. And it, it's quite a good, um, it's quite, I'd say it's quite a free adaptation in some ways in that he, drops in incidents that I certainly don't remember being in the novel. Um, but I, I think it's quite good. It's quite, you know, it's, it's good fun. If you're interested in a sort of radio drama version of this story, it's worth checking out. Yeah, I'll have to check that out. Yeah. Well, Lee, it's been uh, a pleasure as always, uh, diving down to the depths of the ocean with you, uh, checking out the abyss and, and what might lurk down there with Captain Nemo. Um, but before we go, why don't you let our listeners know uh, where they can contact you if they want to get in touch with you online and what else you've been up to recently? Yeah, you can find me on my podcast, um, The Filibuster, which we sometimes have Star Trek guests on. You've been a guest on a few times as well, Duncan. Mm-hmm. And The A24 Project, where we interview people about indie filmmaking and, and movies as well. And you can find me on Twitter at Star Trek VHS and at Lee Hutchison underscore. You're blended, all right. 